All right, what is going on, guys? It is time for another episode of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. And well, this is a big one. I mean, technically, it's not the 100th episode because, you know, the Dakar rally was like 16 episodes or something. I don't know. I lost count of how many episodes I was doing two a days with that one. But officially, we're going to call this one episode 100 of the Chasing Waypoints podcast. And damn, has it been a journey. Let's turn that party down a little bit here. Let's get We got to get the audio just right because we have got a special guest tonight or today for today's episode. I'm recording this before Sunday, but I hope you guys have been enjoying. So the whole plan was to basically associate race numbers with episodes numbers because we were kind of in that range. Well, you guessed that episode 100, we got somebody very special on the phone. We're going to have somebody special on the phone here in just a moment. So I'm absolutely excited. I appreciate everybody that has liked and subscribed and shared the podcast sent me messages and kept this thing going it's all of you guys that have helped motivate me even when it was uh, like damn what am i going to talk about this week so i'm absolutely stoked and excited that you guys have stuck with us this far with the journey and only more to come so we'll be talking a little bit more about the projects and things that are coming up here in the near future uh but in the meantime man we gotta get uh we gotta, we gotta get some stuff going here let's see here Let's see if we can get this uh, dialed. We, we went away from the uh, whole, uh, let me see here, turn that up right about there. We'll mute that there. We're going to hit that there. Everybody's wondering, like, what is he doing? All right. So as mentioned before, so we were talking about episodes matching up with what they are. So episode 100. And I guess you guys name know it. We're going to have none other than racer number 10 at the 2023 Dakar Rally, Mr. Skyler House. Let's turn this party down. Yo. Sorry, did I blow What's your ears up? off? <laughs> no, dude, all good. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I better turn the music down. This thing is like super loud in the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Nice, dude. All right. How are you feeling? Are, are you back uh, on pretty good <laughs> back in time now? Dude, not really. Like I'm so, you know, what's most frustrating is the whole entire time at the Dakar, we had to wake up at two 30 in the morning, three o'clock every day. And then like on rest day, I couldn't sleep past, you know, five thirty six, And then I come back and it's almost exactly opposite time schedules. So when I come home, I'm falling asleep at like, 7 30 8 o'clock and i'm up at three o'clock every day and it's so i'm like dude i just want to sleep past 3 a.m for the first time in a month i i hear you see that's funny that's my normal schedule which worked when you guys were over there because you know you guys were getting up all right cool i'll do the stage previews i'll do that <laughs> but that's crazy though but still even well yeah well, you guys were usually first out of the bivouac right so you had to be up what was the earliest bivouac you guys had like to leave? Uh, the earliest I had to wake up was two twenty in the morning. Yeah, great. but there was multiple days that I had before three a.m. like uh, uh, alarm clocks, and then uh, 
Yeah, most almost everything was consistently between two thirty and three thirty for the whole race. Damn, fifteen days of that straight. Yeah, gnarly. Yeah, and then we're going to sleep somewhere around roughly eight o'clock every day. So decent amount of sleep, honestly, for you know, can you know, considering mm-hmm. waking up that early, we got pretty much you know a good amount of sleep. But the thing that's gnarly, like for instance they canceled that one stage mm-hmm. because people were tired. And I saw a bunch of people online that were like, you know, Oh, I can't believe they canceled the stage because of people were tired. I'm like, you know, dudes like Mo and, and a handful of the other Molly Moto guys or, or just some of the other amateurs weren't coming in until, you know, past dark nine, 10, 11 o'clock midnight. Paul Neff came in at like, what like 2 a.m. one time or 1 a.m. or something like that and then we have a you know 4 or 5 a.m. start the next day so it's like people don't realize that yeah okay maybe the elite guys the gp riders are coming in at four o'clock in the afternoon but there's guys that are coming in after dark too it's yeah they're yeah, it's pretty gnarly more of a decent time hey, but you know what it's not a problem you know let's just raise a hundred thousand dollars find a few sponsors rent a bike from Bart and uh, you can try it for yourself. It's pretty easy, right? <laughs> yeah. Pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, pick up a, a Norden, right. And then, uh, and then just go ride 500 miles. No, uh, what about you guys were averaging about what? 350 miles a day. I think. Uh, give or take. There were some days, some days that we had like thousand kilometer days and then other days that were, you know, like the, the thing that's a little bit, I don't know, like we had our shorter stages. Um, We still had like 500 kilometer liaisons. So I don't think we had a day that was shorter than like 600 kilometers. That's yeah. 62, six O's. Yeah. About 300, about 300 ish miles, a little over 300 miles. Three. So, yeah. So I think we, we, I think the total mileage is like 5,200 miles or something like that. mm -hmm. Yeah. Divide that by 14. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah so go ahead ride that on your <laughs> ride around town <laughs> and just yeah, kind of mi- mimic the schedule and see if that's uh if, you, if the thoughts are still the same so yeah and let's let's be honest the norden is pretty comfortable on the highway the the old rally bike you got a duck behind the windscreen to to catch the draft or to get out of the wind and then you're transferring butt cheeks so your butt doesn't <laughs> fall asleep and you don't get, you know, monkey butt. <laughs> Got to stretch out the legs sometimes too. Yeah, it's it's awkward. Yeah, it's you have to survive it. It's not like you're. The bike was not designed for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, as something that I was I was kind of curious about, and I literally just thought about this as we started talking. It's fourteen days, fifteen days of of racing, and now I know like the pre-race jitters and all of that happens. Does that happen 14 days in a row? No, honestly, I was more nervous for the prologue because the prologue is, I, I actually really like what they did now before you used to be able to play a strategy almost every single day. Mm-hmm. But now like the prologue is reverse order from like you okay so top 10 if you finish inside the top 10 you get to choose your starting position anywhere inside the top 40 mm. and before it was like top 15 only get to choose within the top 15 so essentially if you finish first you could choose 15th 
now if you finish first, you could choose 40th if you wanted to. So it took away that strategy because technically if you finish 16th, you could start 16th. But now that's not the case anymore. Now, technically, like finishing 11th kind of puts you in an okay position, things like that. But anything outside of finishing inside, like, say, top 20 or whatever, then you're you're screwed. You're going to have to start at the front of the pack, which was opposite. Normally, if you finish 20th, you would start 20th, like you'd start way behind. But now they basically made it so you literally had to do the best the best you could on the on the prologue Mm -hmm. and before it was like you could go slow on the prologue and get a better starting position and just take the take the extra time or whatever Mm -hmm. but now that like if you go slow on the prologue you just get screwed yeah so i was more scared i was like more nervous because obviously like you have another 15 days ahead of you and prologue can make or break your rally. Like if you end up leading out the the first stage, it could literally screw you for the whole rally, which happened to Ricky one year. Like he won the prologue, had to open the next day and it like put him way behind from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I totally screwed up the prologue and ended up having to open the, open the stage. Like I finished, I had to start fourth, two guys in front of me. I caught really early, and then Nacho was in front of me the whole rest of the stage. So I still had Nacho's track to key off of, which was nice. So I was able to go pretty high pace and not lose a lot of time. But I literally almost ruined my 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 chances on day one because I, got, I had a bad prologue. And now with the time credit, too, uh, it, they like everything they've put in place literally just gives you bonuses to doing the best you could can instead of trying to go in slow on purpose or, you know, trying to play this crazy strategy. It's just, it's, it gives you bonuses. If you just do your best, like if you win stages or if you finish in that top three or you do good on the prologue or all that kind of stuff, they took away all that, that going slow on purpose type of stuff. I mean, there are some days that you definitely still want to, but now at the time opening time bonus, that's what I tried to do the whole race was just stay in that time bonus. And, and it played out pretty, pretty decent, but I was, as far as like nerves go, I was less nervous for the last day, even though it was coming down to those, those, you know, seconds and minutes. That's so crazy. I was was less nervous for that than I was for the (laughs) troll. But I think it was just like, you know, the nerves, the whole year has led up to this moment and it's just about to start. So like I was pretty stage one, I, I honestly like prologue all the way up until like stage three or four, I had, I had some pretty serious butterflies going, but after that it all mellowed out. And then I got more into that kind of, it is what it is mentality. Like literally you can just, you can only do what you can do and it, it is what it is. But yeah, beforehand I definitely had butterflies going pretty solid dude it, it i mean watching the watching you guys ride i mean and i saw that you were you're out there having fun and all the interviews and everything that you did like anytime you were you were talking and all this stuff it seemed you know it's like you weren't but <laughs> i guess that's well, different what's the helmets on and the <laughs> i mean here's the thing like i operate a lot off of positivity like some guys ride better when they're angry or something like that and that's not me like I ride, I ride the best when I'm having fun and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And, 
things like that. And the pressure's off and stuff. I think that's probably the biggest difference between last year and this year's last year. I was, I was way more focused on like, on, on being very serious and doing an, an exact strategy. And this year I was just like, look, you, there's so much that goes on that you just can't control. All you can do is, is do your best. That's it. And like, if at the end of the day, like you can't be angry with anything because you just did your best. There's stuff that you cannot control. You can't help it. So much stuff. And so for me, I was just like, you know, I'll just do the best I can and enjoy every moment because, you know, I said this in a couple of interviews before what we're doing in the Dakar, like what I get to do is not a normal thing. And some people, you know, dream, I, I have been there where you have to pay your way to do it. You have to pay a hundred grand and however you have to get that hundred grand by sacrificing stuff. Like there's so many other people that do that or want to do it and can't. And I would be doing everyone like a, a, a big time negative. If I, if I didn't enjoy it, like if I was complaining or whining about stuff or, or whatever, I'd, like that's just such a, a middle finger to all the people that want to try and do this if I'm doing it and complaining about it, that's just messed up. So, you know, my whole entire mindset for the whole thing was just do the best I can control what you can control. And at the end of the day, like whatever the result is, it is what it is. Like, yeah, I've loved would I, I would have loved to have been standing on that top step, but there's probably a handful of things that I could have been done differently throughout the course of 14 days. to give me a five minute boost, but I didn't and I wrote my best. I did what I could and I came up a few minutes short. And at the end of the day, I cannot be angry at that because I literally just did the best I could. And I did what I thought was right on each day and it landed me on the podium, which I'm extremely proud of. And that just gives me a little bit more experience and knowledge to go back and try to do better next time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting you said like I mean obviously I I first the times that we've met I've always been on the organization side of it and and watching the rallies and watching people and I, and and you can see what happens when you have one bad road book you know I'll call it a bad road book but meaning you had you know you had a tough time navigating and it turns into the spiral and and it downward very quickly because the next day you've already got the past, you know, you've got yesterday's roadbook still on your brain and how you screwed that up. So I, I can see what you're saying. Like, you know, it's just, it is, I don't know if the correct terminology would be, it is what it is. And I did what I, everything I could in my power and on to the next one. Yeah. And literally like that's, that's, I feel like a, a lot of what my mentality has always been. And because like in rally, you can't, can't let stuff get to you. Like if you make a mistake, you can obviously get angry and just be upset that you made that mistake. But if you get angry and you're like, Oh, I just made a mistake and now I have to make up that time. Like you're going to just make more mistakes or you're going to push yourself into some other type of error or crash or something like that. Like literally if you make that mistake, all you can do is just be like, all right, well it's behind me. Like, just do the best I can from this point forward. And hopefully that, you know, I don't make any more mistakes. So like there's no, <laughs> I don't know the way my, the way my brain works during a rally is, is so much more mellow and so much more at ease than you might think. Like I'm just, I'm just riding my dirt bike out there. Like I of course want to win and 
whatever, but you're, you're, it's you against the bike, against the road book, against the clock, mm-hmm. you know, all the other riders out there are essentially having their own struggles. They're having their own thought process and all that kind of stuff. Like all you do is just do your thing as best you can. And like, it is what it is, you know, that every single, let's say you have a bad day. Like I, I would say probably my worst day was I had to, I started second behind Luciano. Luciano was opening and up until that point, uh, the navigation was actually fairly like it was difficult navigation, but it was, you were able to open fast. You were able to open quickly. And on that day, turns out like, like I said earlier, I was trying to stay in this, this bonus zone. So stay in the top three. And that day, the navigation turned out to be very tricky and it wasn't like, tricky that it was just impossible and you just couldn't figure it out. It was just, it slowed you down enough. And we laid down a perfect track that every single person behind us could go full gas for what we had to slow down and figure out. And before that, up until that point, you could actually kind of see where you were going and see where the road book was putting you. So you could open quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this point where you were like in canyons and technical areas and stuff, you had to go slow to figure it out. Me, Luciano, Toby, like this is where seven riders caught up all like everyone. We had seven of us all together and that hadn't happened. We lost, you know, a lot of time. I lost less time than I thought, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, I just, like I said, that day was probably the worst day as far as losing time. And it didn't really like mess us up too much. And so from that point forward, I was like, all right, you know, third, third to sixth place is kind of like a better zone. So that's kind of where I want to be finishing Uh third place, probably the best. Cause you got two tracks in front of you. You can still be in that bonus zone and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, up until that point, I think, I don't know, my, like I said, my mentality works as, as just being, all right, well, you know, this is what we're working with. There's nothing I can do to change what has happened all I can do is focus on what's in front of me and I operate off of positivity. So there's no point in being angry about what I've done wrong. I just have to brush it off and move on. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting, that was something that towards the end, like when I was doing the the updates, I started thinking about that and, and I guess that is right. So there are going to be sections where even the time bonus, you don't really get as much out of it as as you would in other sections right so fast opening tracks you know you'll you'll definitely capitalize on bonus time but when it's a slow opening track the guys behind you will clear that bonus time that that difference isn't as much right so but that's what i'm saying so like for instance kevin kevin finished more in like the mid mid top 10 range pretty much consistently throughout the entire race so he got much less bonus time than I did, but ended up like, you know, doing well because he was able to make up more time by having the tracks in front of him. Mm -hmm. But like, I was able to stay more consistent just because I was, I do, I accumulated like close to 15 minutes of bonus time. Something like that. It was like last time I checked it, I didn't check on the last days, but, um, well, yeah, last time I checked, it was like over 12 minutes. So, 
I mean, yeah, without that bonus time for one would have placed way, you know, farther down, much more of a yo-yo effect and all that kind of stuff. This time bonus was sick. It was super, super nice to keep the racing tight and, you know, not, not have this big flip-flop within guys and have guys like hauling butt on one day, losing time on the other day and going through the pack on the next. Like it kept things way more consistent, but I said like Kevin had much less opening or, uh, uh, you know, bonus time than I did, but we were still super, super similar on time. So, yeah, that's, I think that, uh, it seems like it did away with that strategy for the most part. I mean, or at least it was definitely a curveball. I think everybody was feeling it out. Yeah. There are some days like, you know, the long dune days, you definitely did not want to open. So even though you got a time credit on those days, you just, you, you could pretty much guarantee that you would lose, you would lose much more than you were going to gain. You know, if you look at the data from, uh, I guess, previous times of, of opening long dune stages, you're almost guaranteed to lose somewhere around like 15 minutes. And with the time bonus, the maximum time bonus you would ever get would be like five minutes. Mm. So, yeah, you're still going to lose 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 or minutes is gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you, you would much rather open a shorter dune stage or, you know, a, a longer, not like regular, regular tracks, like more soil stuff like that. So there is still strategy to it. Like specifically on the day that I did that awesome no footer, mm-hmm. um, I was trying, I, I was intentionally trying to get a rear p- star position for the next day. Cause that day was only 115 kilometers. So I was getting the time bonus for that 115 kilometers, but the next day was like, you know, three something, I think, or maybe it was 280. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like 289 or something like that. But, uh, but it was almost all dunes. So I didn't want to like do super well. I wanted to be kind of in that six, six to 10th range. Mm-hmm. But the issue was, so I was, I mean, the no footer actually worked into my favor. <laughs> Cause yeah. I was trying to <laughs> lose some time anyways. Yeah. But, uh, the, the thing that's really difficult with, with doing that. And that's, this is also like, you know, strategy is, is very difficult to pull off because you have nothing to gauge yourself off of except for just your gut feeling or what the other riders are doing around you. So on that day specifically, you know, we wanted to lose somewhere around three minutes and that would have put us kind of in that like six to 10th range. And, but I was judging myself off of Tasha behind me and Toby in front of me. Well, Tasha had a transmission failure, so he didn't catch me. So I was like, man, I'm going slow, but nobody's catching me. This is strange. And then I started catching Toby. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm going too fast. I was like, I don't want to catch Toby. So, But Toby was going slow waiting for me to catch him to because he was basing his speed off of whether or not I caught him. Yeah, he was pacing and, you. Yeah, yeah and, but I was pacing him also. So we really <laughs> pay, paced each other going way too slow. So we ended up losing like eight minutes that day instead of three, which looking back now, if we just did what our gut feeling was and went as fast as we thought we should have been, instead of pacing off of each other, that would have been the difference between a win. Like we would have, we would have all that time that 
Kevin made on me, like that five minutes at the finish line, I would have been in front of it. Same with Toby. Like it would have been much closer between me and Toby at the finish. If we would have just done our gut feeling instead of going, you know, this cat and mouse thing with each other. So that those are the kind of things it's like strategy. You do what you think is best during that day. But at the end of the race, you're like, man, if I would have just like, literally just this one thing just rode my normal pace throughout that day that could have been the difference between a you know first or second yeah. well and it's what's crazy though too i mean I, and i don't know like uh for for the uh for those playing the home game is like you're literally one note away because that's what happened last what is it in 22 right there was a note in the in early on and that's what ended up catching ricky out and a couple of others out right yeah, where everybody like was kind like half, like the, half field. the top yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i got lucky that day i ended up losing i think like i think total times spent lost that day for me was like 17 minutes and then for the other guys it was like 45 minutes or more That's... that they lost search searching for that wpc but the problem is is like okay they're searching for a waypoint but they lost even if they they couldn't have possibly found the correct track without hitting that waypoint so Ah. essentially the waypoint was sending them back onto the correct track but we're in the middle of the dunes which have tons of different trails going through them so you could hop on a trail might get lucky and it'd be the right one and you just take the whatever 20 minute time penalty for missing the waypoint and and maybe lose less time than you would have you uh, lost searching for the waypoint, but without that waypoint, you never would have known if you were getting oh, no. back on the correct track and where, yeah. you know, like how to re- reset your Odo and get back on the right, right, uh, you know, mileage or whatever. So like that was, that was really kind of, uh, a dumb move on the organization part by doing stuff. Cause they already play a lot now with the cap headings because mm-hmm. we have, your, your exit cap, your cap average and your cap calculate and the cap averages and stuff, they can play a ton. Like you can start out and you're going on the right cap. Technically the general rule is that if you're more than 10 degrees off of the cap, you're not really, you're probably not on the right track, but there's times that we got like way off, like 20, 30 degrees off. And then that came back and it was the right track. So like, they already play a ton yeah. and then they played with, okay, here's your exit cap. After 500 meters, you have change your cap to this. And then after stay on main piece. So that after stay on main piece, just canceled everything you just did. <laughs> so it's like, they, they, I don't know. They just play a lot. And yeah. th- this year they played less with that. Like the navigation was more, <clears throat> I don't the hard thing is that there's so much information in those boxes now, like you really have to focus to make sure you get all of it, but they're, they are playing less with that. Like the WPCs are 300 meters now, which is much better because before they were 200 meters. So like you, uh, I think last year, if you were more than one degree off the cap heading, you were going to miss a waypoint, things like that. And like being one degree off is (laughs) Like that's insane. Like that's, you know, of course you're going to be one degree off. Like yeah. <laughs> to be, to be that perfect is gnarly. So, you know, 300 meter radius is, is way nicer. And then not having these like quadruple notes in there, things that cancel it out was way nicer too. So, 
but I mean, the navigation itself was difficult. It was like, it wasn't, I, I wouldn't say difficult. It wasn't impossible. It was just like, there's a lot of information. And if you put a road book from say 2018 or 19 up against the road book from now, and you'd be like, Holy cow. Like it's a completely different language. The road books from back then are, are way more simplified than they are now. Now there's just so much complicated information that you have to read. Yeah. They're, well, they they were pretty vocal about it. Like, you know, they were making it complicated to try and slow you guys down. And I mean, it seems like it's working, but it seems like, yeah, now they're putting two and three notes into one note. Yeah. At least yeah. yeah the, the thing that's, that's strange about it is they're making diff- complicated na- navigation to slow us down, but what will slow us down is just more turns. So they have complicated notes. Uh, navigation, but then they'll have sections where, where we just go like on a on a cap heading for you know for kilometers. Like we're just going for a long way, like you know, fifteen kilometer, twenty kilometer distances on one cap heading, and then we'll hit on like some chots or uh, dry lake beds, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just hauling in a straight line or you know something like that. So that's that's where we're saying like, look, that's if you want to slow us down, just don't have us go straight for so long. Like just have us tur- turn more. You know, the, the difficult navigation, it's already pretty difficult. Just have us turn more. That's essentially yeah. it. So yeah, maybe right. they'll, they'll listen. Maybe they'll do that. Yeah. And so there was, uh, there's another one that came up too. There was the, uh, the speed limit now, 160 kilometers an hour at the total. Yeah. Like, uh, What's I don't know, like, at the very beginning when that first came out, I was so against it. Mm-hmm. And for good reason, too. Like, okay, they're doing all this stuff to try and make it safer. And then they give us something that we have to manage on our own. So you have a light that blinks at you, and then you have to cut the throttle. So, you know, factory riders have a bonus into their ECU. We can... We can program it to where it cuts the power and it plateaus out at a certain speed. So we, it makes it almost impossible. Like I still had one impulse at 161, but they give it to you for free. So you don't actually get the penalty, <coughs> but like I had an overspeed and, you know, stuff like a lot of other guys had overspeeds just because you hit a downhill with a tailwind or something like that. And it's just, the, even though we have in our programming, the a speed limiter, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still possible for us to to overspeed, so it's not like this this cure all. It just holds us at exactly whatever speed limits at one sixty, so it holds us at exactly one fifty seven or something like that. that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. It just kind of plateaus the power out and makes it harder. So if you're on flat like a like a dry lake bed, going flat and it's hard packed, then yeah, it's going to stay pretty consistent. But if you're going over like rolling hills or you have like a tailwind or you're on soft ground and it all of a sudden hooks up on hard ground, you still have to manage it yourself because it's not perfect. Yeah. So factory guys have it a little bit better. So it's not like so much of a stress, but, you know, say the amateur guys, they have nothing. They literally have to, to go off of a beeper. 
and say Mason doesn't have the programming. So he has a light hooked to a GPS. And anytime he gets within a certain range, the light starts blinking and that helps him kind of modulate it, but he still has to manage it on himself on himself. So I mean, picture yourself trying to go hundred miles an hour and looking down at a speed limiter and trying not to speed. Yeah. That's super dangerous. Yeah. It's really dangerous for, for, for amateurs to, take the focus off of where they're going at high speeds. Uh, you're already taking the focus off of where you're going to navigate more difficultly that the, uh, you know, it, everything's more difficult. Mm-hmm. So, and then now you're just adding another thing to take the focus away from where you're going. I feel like that's more dangerous. However, you know, and also I think it's just worse for racing. Like there's, there's so many other times that you could either, be make that difference by by going fast mm-hmm. you know and there's so many sections out there where you like we're literally just sitting there at 155 the whole time just like dude this is like you could be stretching it a little bit and make up a, a few seconds here and there or you know things like that where it just keeps the racing more racing and this it's like we're all just going the same speed yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. You're not going to gain time. You're not going to lose time. You're just going to stay exactly where you are. And there is kind of a bonus to that. It's like a little break. You can get a sip of water and you're not like, you know, stretching yourself thin. And it's also easier on the tires and the mooses. And so there are some bonuses to, to having the speed limit. But the thing that they don't realize is that anytime we're going over that speed, it's usually on flat long ground that we can see where we're going. We're not going 160, 170 kilometers an hour through rock sections and through dunes and through sketchy areas. Like we're going that fast where it's, where we feel comfortable going that fast. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know. They say that they look at the data and like the, the, the fatalities happen over a certain kilometer per hour. But I, I like, I don't think the data shows that. So I don't really know. I think this is more of just like a, something that they are trying to, you know, do like, here's the thing though. Like we had a safe Dakar more or less like, yeah, we had some, some crashes and things like that, but you know, everyone made it home. So that's definitely a positive side. And for me, I didn't get the feeling that, that the, the speed limit was a bad thing. I don't like it, Mm -hmm. but I don't have this like, you know, this is the worst thing ever. The, the organization needs to change it, blah, 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 blah. And, I'm never you know, coming whine, back again. <laughs> yeah. Whine and cry about it. Like I'm not about that. I just, yeah. I don't like it, but at the end of the day, you know, if they need to do something to try and, you know, yeah. if this makes it safer, then that's fine. But I don't see how amateurs that don't, that don't have the technology to, you know, the bike manages it for you. I don't see it being safer for us. It's like, it doesn't really take that much extra effort on our part to manage it. So I'm not really like, it doesn't really bug me too much. I don't like it, but it doesn't bug me, but anyone else that has to manage it on themselves, I definitely don't like it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like that would be something that for maybe I like more of the rookie. My, my concern initially with the speed limit like that would be that it's going to push people or people are going to pressure themselves into going faster than they should be in sections leading up to a dry lake bed or coming off of a dry lake bed because they feel like they lost time because everybody was at one six. It's like, 
uh, I mean, yeah, street racing, that's, right? That's Everybody's an, fast in a straight line. Yeah, that's that's an idea that kind of all of us had, but I never. I there was like maybe two times that I found myself wanting to stay at the limit, but it was still in an area that I knew I could. Yeah, like I never found myself wanting to try and push up to the speed limit or trying to push that through sections that I didn't feel comfortable going that fast anyways. Like I, I don't really think that was as much as a, a, a problem as everyone thought it would be like, everyone's like, I need to be going the speed limit all the time. So like literally only a couple sections that I found myself doing it in like, like there were some silt pockets. Like it was just a little bit rolling Hills and stuff like that, where it was hard to even get up to the speed limit. And I knew like, if you could be at the speed limit, you would make up a few seconds. So I just, you know, you try to find those, those hard lines and get traction and get up to the speed limit. Mm -hmm. And that's the only time I ever found myself like really trying to like push it. But the rest of the time, like you just ride whatever you feel is comfortable because there's no chance. Like if you try to push that speed limit, you're just going to destroy yourself. So I don't think it was, that was a big of a problem as like a lot of us thought it would be. Uh, a step in the better direction uh, compared to the tire rule that they had a couple of years ago. So we would, we think. yeah, I think the tire, <laughs> the tire rule was freaking the worst idea ever. I still don't like, there has to be a, a better solution to manage speed. Mm-hmm. Like just having a straight speed limit for people that can't manage it or that have to just manage it by their wrist. There has to be a better solution. I'm not, I mean, the only solution is, is the technology, like the, the manufacturers, specifically KTM Husqvarna that have like rental bikes or, or customer bikes. They just make that, that technology on a production bike, which would be incredibly hard and expensive. Cause we just, I mean, we, we just got it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't really have an answer for that or yeah. know how it's possible, but there has to be a better solution than just having you manage it by your wrist. Yeah, I feel like it, it only works if the bike is fly-by-wire because then it can curve right. the throttle input. Anything other than that, like if you put a hard rev, like a rev limiter in it, yeah, at, you know, at a lower RPM or lower, uh, at a different gear ratio, it's going to react differently. Like, oh, don't go past 14,000. Well, yeah, 14,000 at in sixth gear, you drop 500 RPM, that's four, five, six, seven miles an hour or, you know, right. 10 kilometers an hour, that's going to put you way down. So it's not yeah. as easy to, to do. So no. And then you sh- shift down into third and then it's like, Oh, limit at 14,000 or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you're just like going over the bars. Cause it just cuts power randomly. <laughs> just you know? said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so, so, I mean, after, you know, was there a point in the rally that you were like, okay, it's game on like, okay, everything that we did in the off, I'm going to call it the off season, but you guys were racing the whole time that you're like, okay, everything's led up to this. This is, you know, I feel like I'm ready to go. The bike's ready. Everything is good. You know, like the plan fell into place. Was there a point in the rally where you felt, felt that? Um, I don't know. The, the thing is like, I've always felt capable, you know, once I got, mm, well, that's, uh, when I got my ninth place, I knew I was capable of more, but I like, I broke the bike in half. Like I had pretty serious, like mechanical issues. I was on a hundred percent stock bike. Mm-hmm. 
So I knew I was capable. Like I got a couple of really good stage finishes and like did decent overall, but I had like major adversity just from, from bike stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I was capable. And then when I went back and I got fifth, I was like, all right, my own mistakes kept me off the podium. Like literally a hundred percent my fault. So I was like, all right, if, if I'm on the correct equipment, And that was essentially just like, uh, like that bike that I was on this, that year had a, a close ratio six speed. So it wasn't the, the huge, like overdrive six gear. Mm -hmm. It was like a, like a normal six speed transmission and then just suspension, but it wasn't like a factory bike. It was just suspension that was set up for me. And then a close ratio six, six gear. And that, you know, I got fifth and I was like, all right, sick. Like I know I'm much more capable. So then we switch to the new bike. Like I signed the contract, we got on the new bike. Well, technically I got my podium at Silkway. So I was like, all right, you know, but still made some mistakes at that race. And like at Kazakhstan, I had a moose failure. So there's just a lot of times that the pieces of the puzzle, I just, I, I wasn't putting them in right. And all that is, is just kind of learning lessons, getting more experience, yada, yada. Then we changed to the new bike and definitely were struggling on setup for quite a while. Like got some pretty poor results there for a little bit. And then we got into a pretty decent, you know, zone for the Dakar last year. And then again, like it doesn't matter how much preparation you put in or whatever happens. Like you can just, regardless if you're pushing or not, sometimes you just like have crash. Like I had a crash this year and I don't even know what I hit. I got up and I tried to look for the rock that I hit. Couldn't find it. Yeah. it like on flat ground and I crashed. I was like, dude, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. So sometimes just stuff happens. So I jumped into a dune compression that you just couldn't see. So, you know, what do you do? Yeah. So after that, like putting in a lot more effort in my training, I got, I did more motocross. I did some motocross training. I got hired a personal trainer. Got, you know, I still didn't do a hundred percent of what he asked me to do. I didn't do like a, a perfect job of my training. And it's something that I'm still working on trying to do better at too. But having much more of a structured plan, I think helps the most. And I think that's all that really changed for this year is that I knew I've been capable of a good result. I just kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I still didn't do it perfectly. Like obviously made some, a, a couple bad calls and the strategy I wasn't really a hundred percent on, but, uh, but the pieces of the puzzle just came together. And like I said, I, I don't think it was like, all right, yeah, the, now it's the time and everything, all I've ever worked for came up to this moment. Like I just did what I knew I could do. And I think I was just better prepared, more experienced, a little bit, you know, in better shape, and confident on the motorcycle because we've been testing so much and just kind of, you know, I, I think at one day at a time, just kind of kept banging the hammer and, and put it together a little bit better. But I, I didn't have this feeling of like, Oh yeah, this is like, I'm so much, I'm so much more prepared and this is what we prepared all, so much for. And this is all the hard work. I think it was just more consistent confidence mm-hmm. and, and, and over the course of 15 days, just banging the hammer more on what we've already kind of laid the groundwork for and just 
yeah, like I keep saying, just put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. That's well, I mean, in that I'm, I'm looking at, and I'm just thinking like all of the progression and, and where, you know, you started when you were there going with Garrett and then, you know, the BAS team and all of that progression. And yeah, it's, it's, I just, I was curious about that. Like if there was an aha moment, but every, all your results and everything has just kind of shown that, that it's just been this consistent climb to, to where we're at or where you're at now. What's, yeah. And I think it's, a, it, it's definitely important to look at it that way too, because I don't know, there's always those drawings of like what you want success to be like, and it's just this straight line of going up, but what success actually is. And it's all these loop to loops and big holes and, you know, mountains and spikes and all types of crazy stuff that you have to get through. And essentially that's what it is. And you have to be okay with that. It's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's tough too, especially, uh, looking at other people who have had a lot of success early on and then they start to expect it. And then it's like, look, dude, like no matter what you do and how much you get given or what your circumstances are, like they're the, the path to success is not the same for everyone. What struggles might've been for me, it might not be for the other person, but it's also the exact, you know, same, but in different order too. Like you might have success early on and then have some struggles or yada, yada, yada. Like you have to just be okay with the process. And I think that's a lot, like I said, control what you can control. Just be okay with it. The same way I attack a rally, you just have to attack life with in general, just literally do what you can do and, I've had success along the way, but I've also had, you know, pretty serious struggles and been fortunate, super fortunate enough to have people like Garrett and Bart and, you know, all the other people in, in my corner, uh, Mike and and a handful handful of these other people that helped me out financially and, uh, and getting sponsors and just keeping me afloat to be able to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but (sighs) You know, there's there was major learning struggles. It, it, <laughs> it looks easy from thirty thousand feet, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like there's there's major learning struggles in through all that kind of stuff, and that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I don't think it was this big aha moment. It was just more or less like stuff that I've accumulated over the years and and lessons that I've learned by failure or by success as well. Just you know, came together more in a in an organized and like seamless fashion rather than either luck or, or something else. It was just like, look, this is what we prepared for. This is what I've learned. And this is what I do. And I still learned a lot this race. Like there was still so much more that I probably could have done better and could have done differently and stuff. And that's just, you know, more notes in the book that I'll take back to next year and try to bang the hammer again and just go a little bit faster, you know, or, or just do a little bit better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one. And I was, I was talking to, I was talking to Mason, uh, earlier in the week and, and we were specifically talking about that, like how there was, you know, for him, like coming into this year's rally, it was about building speed and, and getting faster. And obviously, I mean, his results showed, you know, that, you know, he was, he's up top, he was able to put the bike on the podium, you know, and, and do that. And then, you know, this year, struggling in the dunes, you know, the dune riding and that side of it. And now like, okay, now my homework is dune riding. So, 
you know, I'm seeing that. And I know that uh, you've, you've mentored and worked with him a lot uh, as well. So I, I feel like some of that's maybe rubbing off on him. Like, okay, you know, just, just keep going, you know, focus on the things you need to focus, which is, which is awesome to see. Yeah. It's a bit of a t- touchy subject that kid right now. Yeah. I, uh, the first, the first week he, I mean, I got to give respect where, where it's due. He definitely did an incredible job to open, to open at that speed, uh, to go as fast as he was doing to win a stage, like all that kind of stuff. That's, that's super, super impressive. But I really felt like, it, what he was doing like we are all of us were telling him like we were watching him take major risks and so all of us were telling him like dude you gotta you got 10 days left to go still like you gotta you know relax like chill out a little bit and so you know trying to have, have be his coach or mentor or whatever you want to call it up into this point i was really proud of like you know his results and stuff but after like the whole situation with his crash and then how everything happened after. And then, I don't know, his mentality now, like, I don't want to get too deep into it. I don't want to say too much, but like, uh, it's tough. It's tough because every, I mean, you got kids, right? No, I don't. No, no, I've made it this far. (laughs) (laughs) Well, having like, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much you tell someone or, or you say, look, this is the way you do it. They're going to learn however they're going to learn yeah. and they're going to make their own decisions. They're going to act their own way and all that kind of stuff. And when, you know, it, it doesn't, I don't know. I, yeah. I want Mason to be responsible for his success and his own stuff. I want him to be responsible for it. So like, so I've, you know, as far as being a mentor and like being a coach and stuff, I've definitely let him take the reins. Mm-hmm. This whole almost last year, I took a big step back and I said, look, dude, like, you know, you're going to have to make uh, decisions on your own and stuff. And I think a lot of his progression came from that, like making decisions uh, within his own team, like his own family and his own, his own mind and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and I, he has to also be okay with, with, I mean, we've all had Dakars. We didn't finish either. Mm-hmm. And me and him had a, had a big conversation at, at rest day. Uh, cause he, dude, I was actually pretty nervous about him. Like he dingered himself twice in a day mm-hmm. and he couldn't, he couldn't move without moving his whole body. Like he couldn't move his neck independently. So I was actually pretty nervous about him. I was like, dude, like you're kind of one mistake away from having a serious issue here. Mm-hmm. So we had a pretty serious discussion about safety and what, what are you actually doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, like you want to come out here, you want to have a good result. You want to finish all your Dakars. Yeah. But at what cost, you know? Yeah. Like at this point you're, you're dropping so much time. It's not necessarily like, Dude, his his pace was not super far off in the dunes anyways like when he was fully healthy mm-hmm. but he was dropping times because dude, his brain and his neck was just not in a good spot yeah. so i wouldn't say like his his he needs to work on his dune pace because that's when he was losing time i think he was losing time because his, his brain didn't know where he was at uh-huh. like <laughs> you know he, yeah. he dingered himself twice so 
like I said, like, I, you know, it's a bit touchy because I want, you, you don't want the people that you coach or the people that you mentor to have struggle, but those struggles and those failures, like if what taught that's what taught me to like have the mentality that I have now and have the respect for the race, the respect for the other racers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, you know, those come to ground moments kind of give that, that little check to you, I guess that make you realize like, look, no, the desert doesn't care who you are. They don't care who you think you are. Like the Dakar, I, I said this to, to Mason when we were training before his first one. I was like, the Dakar doesn't care. You know, it doesn't care if you ha- are having a tough day or you're not happy with this or yada, yada, yada. Like the desert, you know, it's the same thing Sam said before the race. And it sucks because of bit in the day one, but the desert is a be- is a harder competitor than any other person out there. Like, you know, and, and that was the biggest lesson that I was hoping that, you know, he would learn. And then I don't know, he's been making some comments lately that I'm definitely a little dis, you know, a lot of it disappointed with, uh, with what he's been saying and stuff. So, uh, you know, like I said, it's a bit touchy cause I, I want the kid to have success and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's like, we have to be, a, a, I don't know if you want to be a professional and you want to do this, like you have to, you have to act like it too. So, I was, uh, uh, yeah. you know, it's I, tough. It's tough because like I said, he did such an incredible job that first week. And, and then I guess is that crash really, you know, took it out of him and took, was a hard hit on the brain and I've been there before and all that kind of stuff. And I, I appreciate his motivation to soldier on and push through it and all that kind of stuff. And then I also appreciate his decision to understand that it was a smart, a smarter call to, to, you know, stop the, stop his race and, and live to fight another day too. So I don't know, like I said, yeah. I've taken a bit, I've taken a big step back and want him to make, uh, make his own decisions. So yeah. we'll see well, how it goes. Well, I mean, and yeah, and, and, and honestly with what you've done and, and after hearing what you're saying that it's part of, I'm a firm believer that there's like this laundry list in the cosmos or wherever, you know, you want to believe there's this huge laundry list of things you got to go through that are going to make you the person that you are. And mm-hmm. that's, I, I feel like that's kind of like what you're saying in that, you know, Hey, yeah, I kind of took a step back and let him do, but it, you know, but it's a noted result, you know, exactly like what you said is like, Hey, okay. You know, this is where he was at last at car, you know, and then this is where he was at this car, you know, he last, you know, rookie won the rookie class one rally two, did all of this stuff. And then this time they threw him in with GP and then he's up on the box. He's up in the front. He's doing all this. So these decisions and all of these situations that he's gone through leading up to it have gotten him to this. And, and, and I agree. I mean, it was, I can only imagine, I didn't know what it was like. There was an off offline chat about, you know, him being on the rest day or, or I don't know if it was at the rest day or it was at the, um, uh, what was it on the marathon stage? I think that we were talking about that, that, you know, like, Oh, well, you know, I, I personally believe like, Oh, well, I'm sure Skylar's probably around there somewhere. They know each other. So if Skylar saw something, he would probably say something. And, and it sounds like maybe that's what happened, but I agree that the desert in anywhere, any desert in, in the world, if you are trying to race through it or ride through it at speed, it is waiting for you. 
no matter how good you are, it is waiting for you. And I think that that was probably the smartest decision to be made because literally could have been just one more fall, one more incident. And, you know, we're not going to go that, you know, that was the last incident, but it could be one more incident. And now you're talking about missing two Dakars and mm-hmm. a whole season because of that one, like that one last kilometer that you wanted to get in. You know, mm-hmm. so. Well, the the best advice that I ever got was from Kirk Caselli. And he said, every single time you throw your leg over a bike, it's a business decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, could that business decision change your race? Could it change your your season should it could it change next year could it change your life you have to make these choices you have to make that business decision on whether or not it's a smart choice to continue to, to to push hard to take that risk or you know whatever it might be and so yeah i think like i said you know all of those lessons and things that i you know experienced or ever went through or whatever and taught me respect and and humility and things like that and made me into the person that i am today now or you know whatever dedication motivation all that kind of stuff uh you know i think it's important i i i wouldn't want someone to go through the exact process that i went through because i feel like i definitely learned a lot of stuff the hard way and there's a lot more of a blueprint now to follow i feel like of how to do things a little bit more properly. And I think that's a, a direction that I really wanted Mason to take. And that was the really cool thing that, you know, he definitely took a lot of my advice on what to do and how to do it and stuff. And, and like I said, he, he, he made that transition. So that's always the the biggest question, right? Like, okay, you've won the amateur category. Like how are you going to do when you step up and you have to really put it together and, the difference is too, is also you have to sustain that for the course of 15 days. So you know, being, being able to go out first fresh, you know, and, and throw down some heaters is super impressive, but you also have to sustain it too. Mm-hmm. So that's all those, those long lessons and, and stuff that I, I hope he gets the experience to keep learning and stuff. But man, I, I also really hope he learns lessons about, uh, a little bit of humility and a little bit of, uh, uh, yeah, I guess humility is the right, the right term because I think that's also very, very important for, uh, especially a rally racer because there's so much that can, so much, so many harsh lessons that will teach you that you're, you're just an, you're just a normal, you're, you're human out there riding dirt bike, <laughs> you know, you can have some pretty serious reality checks out there, you know, uh, I can, I can only imagine. And I, you know, the, the terrain that you guys were racing, you know, just kind of looking at it that way. I mean, you spend a lot of time with yourself out there. <laughs> dude you really get to know who you are as a person when you're riding on the highway on a straight perfectly straight highway when it's freezing cold for four hours (laughs) (laughs) i'll just a a lot of people wear like you know noise canceling headphones and stuff but i can't i got like sensitive ears so i have to wear my earplugs Mm -hmm. so i'm just alone with my thoughts every day really definitely uh start going nuts and like going yeah i just start singing random songs and like going crazy 
I haven't Slowly sung that since kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're running. I, I, I know it's getting late for you, but I got, there's really three things that I wanted. And one was actually kind of what you just touched on. So just super quick, like, okay, I wake up at two 30 in the morning. What's the routine? Like what, you know, how, do, what does that look like? Can you, can you kind of paint a picture of what, what, what a typical rally day looks like from your view? Yeah. So I had a incredibly, uh, awesome structure this year. So I had my buddy G come with as, as the, my camper driver and like essentially like my helper for the whole race. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I would wake up probably 10 minutes before, <clears throat> before my actual wake up time mm -hmm. and, uh, having like a, a camper, I can take a shower. So I would wake up first thing, just rinse off real quick. And that would kind of just, you know, get me awake so I could function and, and be motivated properly enough to get all my checklists done in the morning. So first order of business, wake up, hop in the shower, rinse off. And then as soon as I get out of there, put my gear on and get probably 70% geared up by about that time, G would bring breakfast in. So I didn't have to go out and go to the, uh, to the bivouac catering or anything like that. G would bring the breakfast to me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, then I would just sit down, eat the breakfast, stuff all that in my face. Um, as soon as I was done with breakfast, get all like the rest of the way geared up the day before I would already have like my hydration pack, my jacket packed, goggles prepped, helmet, everything else like ready to go. So the only thing I have to do in the morning is essentially just put it all on. Um, and then the majority of the race, I would put like a, a nice down jacket made by Mira. Um, I put that on and then some rain gear on too, because it was always either raining or had just rained. So it's a lot of moisture getting splashed by cars or something. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, about that time I probably had like five minutes of a free time to kind of like, you know, get focused a little bit. I mean, yeah, you're, you're getting on the bike just for the liaison, but kind of like, I don't know, like I said, I, I like to operate with less stress and more positivity. So I kind of like, zen out a little bit and just get a little bit focused in and then hop on the bike, put the road book in and then, and then start. So I usually woke up an hour and 10 minutes exactly from when I had to leave the truck to go put the road book in at the start of the stage. So if my start time was, you know, three 30, I would wake up at two 20 mm -hmm. kind of thing. Nice. So you had, everything was just kind of like your, everything was structured and accounted for. You knew, you know, there was, I could see, yeah, there there would be a lot less stress with that. Not yeah, forgetting so anything. Every, <laughs> yeah, every single day, as soon as I would finish, G would wash my helmet and boots, and then I would get new gear, uh, all like fresh underwear, everything, and just stack it up on the seat and restock my my jacket with all my nutrition stuff. I had a um, like a Ziploc bag that my girlfriend Kelly put everything together. She put like all my applesauce packs, goose, uh, cliff bars, like all that kind of stuff together beforehand. So all I had to do is grab that out of the box, stuff it in my jacket and then make a new, uh, you know, hydration pack, put my, my 
element hydration mix in there and stuff like that. And then, so literally all I had to do in the morning was just put it all on. I didn't have to like prepare anything. Yeah. One less, one less thing. And then that's, so you come in, G handles that you handed, you would hand the bike off obviously. And was there any like basics on the bike? Like would like a debriefing, like, Hey, I noticed this, or, uh, I might've hit something a little hard. Don't yell at me, but just check it, please. Kind of stuff. Or dude, on that note, uh, I hit a rock doing about 130 kilometers an hour. One that I didn't see was like in the sand. And I, I hit like a, it felt like a square edge, but it's definitely a rock. I hit it so hard that it launched me into the air and deployed my airbag. So I'm going 130 kilometers an hour, drill a rock and deploys my airbag. I keep racing. When I came into the bivouac later, I had like put a triangle dent into a front wheel and I broke, I I, I bent the rear wheel so far that it broke a corner of the the rim off. Like I drilled this rock so hard that it broke the rear wheel. Like it was, <laughs> you don't see that gnarly. often. <laughs> no, dude. Like I hit so hard that it deployed my airbag. I was like, holy crap. I didn't like even, it just launched me into the air. So I got super lucky with it. Like it wasn't even really close to a crash when I got down, <laughs> broke the rear wheel. Dude. So, <laughs> but yeah, anytime that I would come in, I basically, we would have a debriefing on like, okay, how's the bike? Do we want to make any changes? we have any crashes or any areas that we need to focus on as far as like maintenance. But my mechanic Louie, he's so incredibly thorough that I literally wouldn't even have to tell him. He goes through every single little tiny thing on the entire bike. And if I didn't say a word, he would find it. Nice. He, he would find something that like, like if I fell on the left side and there was something slightly wonky, I could, I, I wouldn't even have to tell him he would find it. Find he's it. so incredibly, he's so thorough. It's gnarly. Dude, that's, so that's something interesting, like growing up racing. I mean, and the whole family, everybody on, on your end, you guys, you've been around motorsports for a long time. And, and that was there a transition period, like learning to trust them? Or was it pretty, like you talked to him a couple of times. You're like, okay, this, this guy knows what he's, what he's doing. Yeah, it was a, if there was a transition period, it was very short. Like, uh, my very first experience with the team is when, like when I went over and tested to like get set up, you know, get my base setting for when I first started, Louie was there and I already started working with him and he could see kind of like his work ethic and stuff. And then my first race with him, I could, I caught that. I caught how, how precise he is. And I was like, oh yeah, there's like, I don't know. I, I don't have to worry about anything because yeah, actually when I do my own work on my bike, I'm actually more worried about it because <laughs> I, I'm always in the back of my head. Like, I mean, when I, I'm, I'm really thorough also when I do my own bike prep, I consider myself a pretty decent mechanic, but I double and triple check everything. But then while I'm riding, I'm like, did I though? Did I triple check it? Did I like, I'm always in the back of my head, but when Louie's doing it, I have zero I, I know he's done an absolute perfect job. So I, I, I don't, it, it's not even in my brain at all. Yeah. That's, that's a crazy thing. Like I, I remember growing up when we were racing Baja bugs, I had to earn my way to the, I was the official parts washer and it took, <laughs> it took a year before I was allowed to even work on the car. And then, then the front end became my thing and then suspension. And all this. so I kind of see how like 
it, it takes a while before somebody trusts you with your bike or, you know, with anything mechanical, especially if you're racing and, and you're depending on it, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I was kind of curious about that. I'm like, oh, how does that transition work? But that's awesome. I mean, that's, I, I did see the video. Uh, I, I, I understand from the bike build breakdown on pricing that he is, there is no price <laughs> for his talent. So Louis is Louis. Uh, like I, I, I can't even put it into words how gnarly he is. Yeah. Like it's not that he's just a thorough mechanic. Like he, it, that's his bike and you don't touch his bike. I'm only allowed to ride it, but like, <laughs> he lets I'm, you borrow I'm serious. <laughs> Dude, people will come in and like, you know, so how's it going? And like put their hand on the handlebar and Louis like, don't touch my bike. And, and he's, he's not joking around. He's like, don't touch the bike. <laughs> he's dead serious. Nice. And there, there was one time that he had like a little bit of a medical deal mm-hmm. in Morocco and he was like pretty wiped out and couldn't reprep my bike. And he would physically like put himself into the hospital working on the bike rather than let someone else do it. Wow. Like he's, I'm telling you, he's so, he's so gnarly. And that, that right there, like I said, like I, we have this thing, like you do your best. I do my best. And his best is absolutely, like I said, he would, he would, he would rather <laughs> do, he'd rather go to the hospital than, than let someone else do the work or to like kind of half-ass something. Like, he's yeah. so, it, he's gnarly. Yeah. And it's, and you know, it's, it's crazy that to think that there's, it does take that because there's so many like little details like, oh, you know, you go a few Newton meters too tight on the triple clamp and now the suspension is going to bind at the top or, you know, you're going to have like there's all these little things that go into a setup of a motorcycle or a dirt bike or even a rally bike. It just has more things than a regular dirt bike. So I can only yeah, I can imagine. And then, of course, then yeah. if there was ever a failure, you know, that it sounds like he's somebody that's going to take that extremely personal big time like if there's if there's anything wrong i've already seen it like even if i come in and like the lever isn't positioned properly and i say hey dude can i can i grab an eight can i you know reposition the lever he's like oh you you can already see in his face like oh i didn't do it like he gives you the stink eye (laughs) yeah it's like you know he he knows me so well that i don't i don't even have to check anything like he's got my my brake pedal, my levers, everything like super dialed. So if I have to, if I have anything and I come to him and I'm like, Hey, this isn't right. He's like, <laughs> like, no, I can't be like, it's impossible that it can't be right. You know? <laughs> so like a, so it sounds like you would have to start the conversation like, Hey, Louie, you know, I'm curious to maybe try the lever being a little higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You have to, yeah. A little bit of sales there. <laughs> Just so it yeah. doesn't get nice. Um, okay. Last, last two, the third one is a short one. Uh, but this one, uh, so what's the, uh, what's the game plan? What's, uh, what's next on the calendar? Uh, are are you doing the whole series? What are we, where are we going to see you next? Dude, the calendar is stacked. It's like, yeah, we just finished the biggest race in the world. You want a little bit of downtime, <laughs> right. but get back to a normal sleep schedule. <laughs> yeah. So I'm already like full swing into training again so we got essentially like a week of being lazy and now i have to really buckle down and get back to it um and then uh 
I go to Austria next week for like the debriefing and celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, then I come back and then we go to Abu Dhabi before Abu Dhabi. We're going to do a little bit of, uh, you know, training and testing. Mm-hmm. So spend a couple of weeks back over there, come back. Um, in between there, we have another training and test, uh, then Sonora. And then in between Sonora and, uh, yeah, route to 40, then there's like two more. Plus I'm planning on doing like a big training camp in Holland with my, uh, my buddy Bart that has his gym and all that kind of stuff. Do some motocross and sand track training there. Nice. Um, then depending on what the team wants as far as like material and all that kind of stuff, uh, it'd be tight, but I'd like to do Vegas Reno, but it's pretty close to, to route 40. So depending on what their schedule is and what they want me to do there, I might do Vegas Reno. We'll see. Everything else is like pretty tight mm-hmm. in there. And then we'll also see about like Silver State 300 too. If it, if if I'm free and it's not too tight between, um, you know Sonora and that kind of stuff, then I'll try I'll try to do as much best in desert stuff as I can. Nice. Um, route to 40. Uh, in between that, then we have more tests and trainings, and then Morocco. After Morocco is our, like our main our main test to get everything ready for the next year's Dakar. So like literally. I think July is the only month throughout the whole year that I don't have some type of week or two week long, either test training or race. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, stacked <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Yeah. yeah. Dude, so July, July technically counts as the off season. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. That man, what a long off season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, and I'm sure there's probably going to be some bike riding involved there. <laughs> Yeah, big time. Yeah. The uh so that's a brings up a question. So for Vegas to Reno, I saw Ricky do it. I th- have you done it already on the rally bike or not yet? Yeah, I, I did it this last year on the rally bike. Do it again or are you gonna go back to to standard? No, if I do it, I'm doing it specifically either to test or to uh Either either test product or uh, bike setup or something like that, gotcha. um, or specifically training on the rally bike. So if I do it, if I do Vegas Serena, it'll always be on the rally bike from now on. Nice. Yeah, well, I think yeah. The I feel like the desert testing and just the I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things like that's what I ride. That's that's your ride. So it probably feels goofy to get on the the regular bikes now, right? That are non rally or. Yeah, dude, if I get on a regular like motocross or like my desert bike or whatever, I feel like I'm on a 65 for one. <laughs> and we have those tank pads, like the rear tank pads that we can brace up against. Yeah. They like go up on our calves. Dude, I'll get on my regular bike and I'll like hit a whoop or hit some jump or whatever and go to lean back against those and I'll almost fall off the back of the bike because I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so used to the rally bike. Yeah. So I- it's... It's a big transition for me to go from the rally bike to a normal bike now because I, I ride the rally bike so much. Mm-hmm. I get so used to it that when I get onto a normal bike, I feel like I'm riding a 65. Yeah. Oh, this is cute. Yeah. I, yeah. I finally got Project 501 uh, going and I went around the block the other day and I've, I'm used coming off my 790, obviously not a rally bike, but 
you know, it's got the raid kit, so it's similar to the, I don't know, it's just got a big ass tank on the front of you. Know, I mean, you've ridden the Norton, and yeah, getting mm-hmm. on the 501, I'm like, this is really weird. Like, where's <laughs> where's the rest of this bike? Yeah. So I don't know, but I just need to work on motorcycle skills, so it doesn't matter what I ride. I just. <laughs> And then do some navigation. So I was going to ask if you guys are doing or if you're planning on doing any kind of like, I know previously you had done like a clinic and uh, maybe did some roadbook stuff, roadbook training uh, for people that were interested in that. But it sounds like uh, Husky's got you pretty booked up. Yeah, I'm pretty booked. Um, I've got a handful of people that have asked to do either roadbook training or riding schools and stuff, which is something that I did a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. But these days, like, if I am home, it's usually for like a week or two and I only have like a weekend free type of thing. So I typically am trying not to book that up and trying to just like enjoy time with just at home with my family and stuff. Oh, for sure. But, uh, maybe towards Dakar, like maybe in November or something like that, depending on the, the schedule. Hold on, let's look. See if we can do something. No, November we're big time booked. So yeah, that's highly unlikely that we'll do. Yeah, any of that. That I will that I will be involved with doing another thing like that because also I'll have to make some new routes, new road books, and then also put that together, which is not really like a huge deal. The road books are time consuming. Mm-hmm but it's just the organization to make sure that everything's all, all good to go. And we spend three or four days out there and doing like a proper, proper training. Cause that's the biggest thing that I think also was a, a change in everything is, uh, quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Like putting your face in front of a road book is very important, but also putting your face in front of the, a, a proper road book, I think is more important. Yeah. Well, yeah. And especially with what they're throwing at you guys, the the notes i remember last year that was a big like more a lot of people did talk about that and how complicated the notes have gotten um with uh, with multiple notes basically wrapped into one so mm-hmm. yeah i could see that well i think that's that's the biggest difference too now that i've noticed i've done so much world round type stuff is like a lot of the way we do things or the way people think is the right way to do things here in USA or just in North America in general is just not either the cleanest way or the, I mean, there's more than one way to skin a cat for sure. I don't want to say it's not the right way to do things, but you know, if the way that, I don't know, the proper way to train and the proper way to do things or the proper way to like build or where to spend your money and all that kind of stuff. Like, like I said, it's just all come with experience over the years. And so that's my biggest thing on training now is I would rather spend the time to make sure it's done 100% properly and we're not wasting anyone's time or money or whatever. And everyone has the right information rather than, uh, here's some road books. There's probably going to be mistakes in them, but that's the adventure. Yada, yada. Yeah. Go for it. Whatever. Thanks. And then, you know, it's kind of not really getting the, the, the proper information as far as how to do things and, that's the other thing too, like how to do a world round or what's necessary and what's the right way to do things and stuff like that. What's more important for me now is, is getting the right blueprint to follow rather than just a 
ton of random stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, and I could see, I mean, it's, it, it can be complicated enough. And so at least putting that together, that blueprint, you kind of straighten the road out a little bit instead of there being all these, you know, different variations, you know, try this or do that. Or, or like you said, you know, yeah, there's mistakes in the road book, which there's going to be, I mean, that's just part of it, but it's another when you can control it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the thing too. I think putting get, given as far as like road books specifically, or like a training specifically, is doing it more in a world rally type or like a Dakar style Mm -hmm. is way more important because I'm sure you talk to the, the American rally original guys, they, they did their damnedest to prepare as much as possible between Kota, Sonora, Baja rally, all the training in between and all so much stuff. And then you, I mean, I'm sure you have, or we'll talk to most of them like the, the Dakar is an animal. I mean, like the hardest possible day you can possibly imagine, or the hardest entire Sonora rally you could possibly imagine. Like, oh man, I barely finished that. That that was so gnarly. Do that every day for 15 days. And so that's what I think is more important too, is like people have this goal and things like that. So if I do a training, I want to do it really properly. And with my schedule right now, it would be so such a task. Yeah. So uh, I can, yeah, I mean, well, just like what you said, and, and just that little bit of downtime, cause then you got to calculate in the jet lag, the sleeping schedule, all of that <laughs> stuff, turning that all around. Uh, so, so we'll, we'll think future. We'll think positivity for the last question. So Louis got a fresh bike for you, ready to go. It's on a plane and you just got to show up where, what stage are you going to ride again? If you go oh, for the Dakar, no, any, anywhere in the world, what would be like, I wish I could do that stage all over again, dude, stage three of the Dakar this year. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was insane. Dude. It was, <laughs> I said on the TV, it was that like, I don't, I don't think everyone else had my same feeling but for whatever reason i i almost legitimately got emotional while i was racing so mason mason opened that entire special which was i think the longest day of the entire rally Mm -hmm. and he opened every single kilometer of it which is incredible that's super sick and i'm just incredibly impressed for it too i caught him i think probably like 150 kilometers from the finish I say caught him, but I was just, I was still probably like 20, 30 seconds behind him. Yeah. So I finally like actually caught up to him and within like range went probably, well, I, I like, I got to the point where I was going to try and pass him. And then I went like five meters to the right of a waypoint and didn't validate it and had to turn around. And he put like another minute on me when I had to do that. So he opened the whole stage, but while I was, so I essentially rode by myself most of the stage. So I hadn't, I didn't have anyone else to like, you know, make the racing more exciting. It was literally just the terrain. It was just the stage. And it was, we're almost riding into a rain cloud. Like later on that day, everyone else got completely rained out and like flooded and they had to cancel the rest of the stage. So we lucked out perfectly. So it's this super dark clouds that we're going into in these incredible like uh uh rock structures like the these these huge rock formations it's like riding through the 
either Canyonlands or Moab or Zion National Park or like these huge, beautiful places times 10, like just massive. And then everything's green because it's been raining. The dirt's wet. And it's just like, it's great temperatures out. It's sandy, like fun tracks to ride through. And like I got through a couple areas that I was just like, there's no way. Like this would be a national park closed down. You could never like get off of a beaten path through here. If this was anywhere in North America, like, and we're riding our dirt bikes through Like this is so sick. It's the most epic conditions possible. It's incredibly beautiful. Like I'm, I'm like, we're doing a good job too. Like I was feeling the flow. I was riding good. Like everything was going solid that day. Everything. I was just like, I legitimately almost got emotional. I can't believe I get to do this. Like, this is the coolest. This is so sick. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I I don't, I don't know if I sent a message on it, but I swore you guys weren't even in Saudi. I just had never seen that side of, of, you know, on any of the TV coverage or any of that stuff. And then, I mean, aside from the fact that it was raining, you know, and all the hero dirt and everything like that, it just looked, it looked from, you know, this side of the pond, it looked amazing, but it sounds like it was, it was (laughs) pretty epic. It was so sick. Probably like one of my favorite days on a motorcycle was a Moran night race in like 2000. Shoot. When was that? 2000. 16 maybe something like that and it was the same kind of thing like just epic conditions it was a night race but it was close to vegas so you had the glow from vegas it was lightning like super crazy just like the most epic fun bitching conditions ever and that's that was always like my favorite time on a dirt bike just because it was so epic like you couldn't have asked for better conditions and just cool stuff happening like lightning and orange glow from vegas and all this kind of stuff happening but this one definitely takes the cake. Like going through that, that just unbelievable countryside and like uh, uh, terrain and whatever with those conditions, like just no. like heaven. Like you couldn't have dreamed of a better day. And I don't know, like, like I said, there's probably a lot of other people that didn't have that same feeling because they're so focused on the race. But that's what I was saying earlier. Like I, I, I want to enjoy as much as possible. So I think that's also why I'm able to, stay more relaxed too during the race because I want, I try to look around a little bit more and enjoy it and take it in and get the experience as much as possible because like, obviously we're not going to be able to do this forever. So I want to enjoy every minute of it. Like like you said, you get to do this. So that's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's awesome. Excellent. Dude. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, I know it's getting close to bedtime for you. So, We'll, uh, Big time. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You're still. <laughs> I it's still funny. See you at three a.m. Though I'll be up bright and early, ready yeah. to go. <laughs> I know. So. I'm. I'm the same. That's just. I've somehow turned that into my normal work schedule now, and and so yeah, I'm up well at four. But yeah, I see the. I have on my home screen still like okay, what time is it in Riyadh? So I added a shortcut, so I knew what time it was where you guys were at over there. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sign completely backwards. <laughs> yeah. Nice, dude. Well, rest up again. Thank you very much for uh for taking some time and uh and yeah, we'll see you. I'm I'm gonna be at Sonora, so I'm sure we'll see you down there. Cool. Sick dude. Yeah, thanks for having me on and we'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. Take care. Cool. Later. Later. All right. There you have it. 
Rider number 10, 2023 Dakar Rally, Skylar Howes. Episode 102 of the podcast. Man, that is pretty amazing. I mean, he, as he just mentioned, that uh, he did say that uh, in one of the interviews that we saw uh, in the highlights and stuff like that, he did mention about like, hey, yeah, you know, this was the best day on a, on a dirt bike and and riding and all that stuff. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I messaged him or made a, the comment that it doesn't even look like they're in Saudi Arabia. It was just absolutely epic, just rocks, green, mountains. Obviously, with the rain, it was going to be hero dirt, whether it was sand or it was hard pack. Uh, obviously, like you said, the the rest of the field or the field towards the back did get a very different experience through there. Um, you know, trying to survive the stage, but luckily it was it was cut a little bit short uh, for them. But absolutely crazy. Um, and man, uh, it was an absolute adventure. And to see Skyler, you know, the progression, you know, like how we talked about a little bit that it's been going up and up and up. Uh, and his mentality and how he's right. I learned, you know, I learned a lot in this uh, in this conversation with him. You know, and this is, uh, I think, the third time we've had him on the show. So absolutely excited and, and grateful that he took some time away from his busy schedule uh, to talk with us and do so. But with that being said, uh, oh, yeah, just a couple of things. So just to recap on the show, when we were talking about 160 mile an hour speed limit, if you guys know, uh, that was something that was introduced for this. So at the top, very top, fast as you could go is 160 kilometers per hour, which is right at 100 miles an hour uh, speed limit. Like I said, there's not a lot of places where you're going to hit that, but you know, there you can get up to that speed. Obviously, the pro level guys, like how he said, you know, I had heard rumor of it, but it was confirmed that they do have a way of managing it. Not that it's going to be 100 percent foolproof, but it at least helps them a little bit, whereas other bikes, it may not be as little. There's a lot of technical stuff to it uh, to make that actually work. You can't just put, oh, I'll just put a rev limiter. I'll just put a speed limiter. Well, with the if it only had one gear, a rev limiter would work, but it doesn't. It has five gears, so you have to watch out for that. Uh, there's a lot of data that you're going to need to be able to manage it, but that's, that's pretty technical stuff. And as much as I like it, I don't know all about it. Uh, maybe we can get somebody on the show that knows a little more about it. We'll, uh, we'll reach out. I'll make some calls. And also the importance of the cap headings. And that was something that came up a couple of times in the conversation and talking about how uh, cap heading, just being a degree off can make a difference. You got to remember that when they talk cap headings, when they give out a number like three, 300 or, or 180 or 94 or 45 or six, those are degrees on a compass, right? North, south, east, west. Uh, then you have every degree in that, right? So if north is zero or 360 and then 90 degrees is your east, south being 180 and then 270 is your west, you have... All of those degrees in between. So all you got to do is be off by one degree for a certain amount of time, which isn't very much, and you will miss a waypoint. And it is very important. So that, that it sound I don't want to make it sound like it's detrimental, but it's something that, you know, as navigation, as your navigation skills increase, there's going to be roadbooks. There's going to be roadbooks where that is important, where they're not as complicated uh, and, and you'll see if you're reading a roadbook, like I'm looking at the roadbook in front of me, then there's not, it's not every single note that has a cap heading on it. So it's not like, Oh my God, I got to deal with this every single note. It's not, it's not that way. Uh, and depending on where you go and especially like we mentioned in the conversation we were talking about is that the Dakar has been working actively very 
actively and proactively on slowing them down and making them comp- making more notes that are complicated and adding to them. Like you mentioned, you know, just having change in headings three different times in one note. Most roadbooks, a lot of organizations would have already added a second note for that. So there's a lot to be said about it. There's a lot of training, but you know what? There's a lot easier ways. Like I said, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's ways to be able to do the roadbooks in a simpler fashion that is easy enough to learn. There's a lot of rally schools out there. We're going to bring you more information about that and getting a lot more uh, resources for you guys. That's what we're focusing on this year. I'm trying to really help uh, get more people into the sport with simple, fancy, or simple, not so fancy ways to make what you need happen uh, to get out in front of some roadbooks. So look for some stuff coming up on the social medias. Uh, and of course, as always, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. I really appreciate everybody that's been along for the journey and to all of those people that rewind and are listening to this show, future, future listeners. I really appreciate you guys. I'm absolutely excited. Episode 100 of the Chasing Waypoints podcast is wrapped up. Very well done. 130 minutes. Wow. We were on the phone for a minute. Awesome. Anyway, with that being said, guys, remember... It'll make sense when you get there. Enjoy the ride. All right, that is a wrap for the Chasing Waypoints podcast this week. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook under Chasing Waypoints, Instagram, Chasing Waypoints underscore official, and, of course, the YouTube under Chasing Waypoints. Hope everybody has a good week. We will see you guys for the next episode. Remember, shiny side up, and don't forget to tag us. We want to see where you guys are riding and what you guys are up to. Have a great week. Bye.